Hey everyone, uh, it's Rob here in the Bunker Studio. Uh, before we get to our episode this week, uh, which is with Sarah Fulton, who will be running for a position on the Red Clay School Board. Uh, the election is uh, actually the 21st of this month, so we'll be plugging that. There'll be links because it's going to be uh, just next week. Um, I, I wanted to have a quick word. Uh, I've been thinking a lot and reading uh, a lot after my conversation with Andre Demise, um, you know, about challenging and threatening the systems um, that are keeping us back from social change and economic change. And, you know, we're dealing with a lot of stuff right now, but we have to stay out and we have to make our statement and make our statement public. Uh, so to that end, uh, I wanted to uh, clue everybody in on some actions that uh, are being planned. Uh, the first one was forwarded to me uh, by our friend and patron Jacqueline. So I want to uh, thank her for, for sending this over. This has been organized uh, by a group in Newark that is on Instagram called The Panel Protests 302. Uh, it's called You Fucked With The Last Generation. It's Saturday, July 25th at 4 p.m. Uh, they're meeting at the Newark Shopping Center. Uh, if you want more information, they are on Instagram at the panel protests, plural, uh, 302. So uh, if you're down in that area, please join them and stand in solidarity uh, for Black Lives Matter and for police reform and for, for social change. That same day, there will be a demonstration and a march in Wilmington. It will start at Rodney Square. Uh, it is organized by our friends at Food Not Bombs, uh, People Over Profit. We're going to march in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. We're going to march uh, in recognition of the teachers and the teachers union who are going to be potentially put in some health jeopardy this fall. Um, we're going to march in solidarity uh, with all of our comrades, and we're going to make another statement. So next Saturday... At 3 p.m., we'll be meeting in Rodney Square in Wilmington. Uh, so there are two options for you next Saturday, the 25th, to get out and threaten a system. Get out and just put your body in the street and make it known in public that we're not going away. Things need to change. Um, you know, we're, we're, we got here. We got to get ourselves out of it because um, no one's going to do it for us. I'm also excited to announce that we're very close to our soft launch uh, for uh, the media enterprise. Um, the Delaware Call uh, will be hitting your laptops and mobile devices uh, very soon. Uh, we'll be talking more about it when the time comes, but uh, get ready because we have some reporters and an editorial team out there putting together uh, some very interesting stuff for our launch, so get yourselves prepared for that. I hope you'll consider supporting our work here at the podcast uh, at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, but we would really appreciate, you know, a small patronage every month just to keep this going. Um, help us support the work that Delaware Call is going to do in their journalism. Help us expand here. Uh, so please uh, consider a patronage. And if you have already uh, made a patronage, you are the best, uh, you are the best fans that we have. Uh, maybe turn your family and friends on to us. Um, and uh, follow us on Twitter at, uh, at Highlands Bunker. 
And now, uh, without any further ado, uh, our episode this week with Sarah Fulton. Hello, friends. Uh, this is Rob in the Highlands Bunker. Uh, we're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're in the belly of the beast and we're behind enemy lines, and we're keeping an eye on all of the Delaware elites. Uh, Carl is uh, once again producing remotely, and uh, I have today over Zoom Sarah Fulton. Um, Sarah uh, has worked with many organizations in Delaware around the issues of women's rights and social justice. Uh, she managed Chris Johnson's Insurgent AG campaign. Uh, and Sarah is currently a candidate for Red Clay School Board District B because they letter districts instead of number them. And I was going to ask you about that. I have no idea why they do that. Uh, but the primary uh, is the 21st of, of July. That's right. So thanks for, uh, thanks for jumping on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I follow a long line of esteemed guests. So uh, sorry. Sorry that this is what you got stuck with this week. I I like as I said before, uh, sort of before we we started. I I enjoy these because um, I feel more like comfortable to have a casual conversation about stuff than having things that either I want to hit because it's in an essay or in a book or because people expect me to ask this person this thing. Um, so I'm I actually I dig these more doing these. So I like it. Um, so we start with people because I'm fascinated, and I and I and I don't know yours totally, although we've known each other for a time. Um, what is your background? Where Where did you grow up? What was it like? Um, you know, kind of how did it? How did you find yourself sort of doing um, kind of public public service work um, or or political work? Yeah, um, I imagine that most people. When you work in politics, there are a couple of people that, you know, they grew up in families where, you know, their parents had the same ideology. They grew up going to protests. They grew up, you know, paying attention to politics and, and you know, really kind of living out their values. My family, um, my family is wonderful, but we were not a political family. And so I actually did not get into the world of politics and policy until a center of my time at college, middle, I think my sophomore year, really. Um, before that, I, uh, so we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So I'm actually originally from Akron, Ohio, um, lived in Dallas, Texas for a time, um, and then ultimately ended up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, yes, like the office. Um, so uh, I graduated from high school in uh, Scranton, and it was, you know, quiet, essentially rural Pennsylvania living. And um, I just didn't have a political bone in my body at that point. Um, looking back, I see a lot of the, like, I see a lot of, like, the seeds being sown, but just at the time, I really wasn't in that headspace at all. And actually, um, I did a lot of work. Um, I worked, my first job was working in an assisted living complex, um, and I was taken with um, with the geriatric population. So actually, um, I wrote my college essay about wanting to go to college, become a doctor, and cure Alzheimer's disease. And when I turned 18, I got to do home health care. Um, so I actually came to the University of Delaware by way of their neuroscience program because I was going to be a doctor. Um, 
that quickly uh, that quickly turned out to not be the case as I suck at physics and biology and um, all of the things that came easy in high school uh, that I thought were interests turned out to not be my strengths. And so I found myself early in college being like, huh, well, that was, that was not what I was expecting. Um, so I ended up taking a class my freshman year of college and it was a healthcare policy class. I was like, okay, healthcare. I know that. I do healthcare. This makes sense to me. Um, and so I, I went into that class thinking that it was just going to be like a breadth requirement basically. And it came out of it basically understanding like medicine is not just about the science, um, behind healthcare. It's also about the laws and the policy. And so that was kind of the turning point for me where I was like, Oh, public policy is really interesting. And this is a way that you get to affect the change without being in a lab or being in a doctor's office. Um, and I was really more drawn to the people side of medicine. And so, um, my sophomore year, I started taking public policy classes and I was like, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, and the really great thing about the University of Delaware is that uh, when you're in Delaware, you know, it's the, the six degrees of, you know, being in Delaware, you walk into a grocery store and there's, you know, whoever, whatever state senator you happen to stumble upon that day. Um, the same goes for being a college student who didn't grow up here. Um, my first campaign was actually Brian Townsend, and I started working for Brian um, actually in 2013. And we would go out uh, door knocking all the time. Um, like every weekend, he would have just like this team of UD students who would go knocking on doors, nowhere near an election. But if you'll recall, this guy had just, you know, unseated the pro tem. He was this new, you know, scrappy, progressive upstart. And I think that for him, continuing the canvassing that was ultimately what led to him winning in 20, uh, 2012, um, just being present and training up young people to get excited about talking to their neighbors and learning about um, the laws and, and policies that were going on down in Dover, but to also learn about, you know, who do you call when, you know, your stoplight goes out at the end of your neighborhood or the constituent services side. So I got introduced to the world of Delaware politics through Brian Townsend in an off election year. And I just, it was, it was so cool. And there were so many of, um, you know, my peers who, uh, you know, Brian Townsend has like a little bubble of like people who came up through politics, like, you know, Tom Carper, all of those guys, like they've got a lot of people who have come up through their ranks. Brian's got like a little, um, like a little crew of people that, um, you know, I think we learned a lot about grassroots politics and uh, have kind of taken it with us. So yeah, I know. I know a lot of um. I, that was a lot like a was that the 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 nascent Delaware United group, uh, with with, with him as well with with his election maybe not afterwards but yeah. Uh, so that so I was working with Brian on his state senate campaigns, um, but when he ran for Congress in 2016, that's when Delaware United um became an official organization, and that. Um, I, I do think that that was near or like a congruent effort to the to the town right. congressional campaign. But that was my first job out of uh, college was uh, being a field organizer for Brian's congressional up in the, the Wilmington office. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I, that doesn't surprise me because I think the first time we met and I don't remember whether Network Delaware was a thing like a named thing, but it was, you know, Drew and eugene had this idea and they were just going to start doing work and so they would put different like committees together just to do stuff and to see what happened to see like where where things would start to happen and what started to get built up and we 
we were in a couple of like policy groups together, like a policy think tank or just like thinking through. And I guess it kind of became what network what's what network Delaware uses now on issue campaigns and sort of analyzing each issue and thinking, OK, where where can we how can we organize behind this? What kind of impact is this going to have? And what's like the foundation behind it? So like it, it sort of it, it, it sort of evolved into work that network does a lot of now. But I think that's how we met. Yeah, absolutely. That was um, that was right after the 2016 election that Network Delaware really started to come together in a more formalized way. I know that Drew and Eugene had been, there had been efforts going on long before then, but I think um, I think the time was right in that this terrible election had just happened. Everyone woke up and was so outraged, feeling guilty, like all of the feelings. And uh, it was it was just the right time for them to have this army of people who were so outraged and so ready to channel their frustration into something positive that all of these ideas that they had, they finally had the you know the supply and demand and like the perfect timing to to get it off the ground. So yeah, so I was one of the uh, one of the early co-chairs. We had um, originally we had six pillars for Network Delaware. Ah, the pillars. I remember the pillars. Pillars. Yeah, it's gone through a lot of iterations. Yeah. Um, frankly, I you know. It's, there's some proverb about, you know, your house being on, on solid foundation. And, um, you know, the, I think the house, the structure has looked different over the last four years, but, um, but that foundation has always been there. And I think that Drew and Eugene and their whole, their whole core team um, deserve a lot of credit for really building something that um, is built to last. I mean, now with the People Power campaign, just it's, it's cool to see where it's gone. Yeah. And again, I mean, Drew was very clear from the beginning that he was going to be open to change. Like all this was going to change. He's like, we're going to do six pillars. Then we're going to do, we're going to see what comes out of that. And then we're going to focus on the three things that come out of that. Or we're going to, we're going to develop some new organizing based on something that came out of that. So he was able to, his genius is really to see, to, to see where, what the best route is and then sort of make sure he's putting his, all of the the resources that he's built uh, and all of the great people there behind like the right things. He's always like thinking them out, thinking them out, you know. And and I think again when I think about it, and I hadn't really thought about it too much, that think tank sort of group reinvented itself into these sort of issue campaigns that they're doing now, and they're very successful at it, which is which is really really cool. You love to see it. You do. You absolutely, folks. You absolutely love to see it, and I can't. I mean, I'd say great stuff about uh, Drew and Eugene, and and this might be a time I can insert a little plug here. Um, we, uh, a group of us, have gotten together to try to build up a, an independent media company um, that would cover some of the stuff I cover on the podcast, but in a in a more formal journalist editorial board way. Um, and we're, we're going to be, I, I think I can say this since I, I know it's sort of set up already. Um, uh, we're going to be partnering with Network Delaware and it's basically working under their, under their guidance, um, to, to do a thing called the Delaware call. Um, so we're going to have a, a website, we're going to have audio, we're going to have, uh, Jordan Howell, who you probably know, oh, yeah. um, who's a journalist uh, around here. He's going to be, yeah, he's going to be running the editorial team that we have. Um, so yeah, it's going to be cool. And it's just another, it's just another thing that, 
you know, Drew's been thinking about and sort of scheming about and talking to people about for months and months. Well, um, and it, it comes at a really good time because I'm sure you're seeing, you know, we've, we've got um, some some competition in the new media market. I'm sure you're seeing the uh, the Delaware Live uh, uh, media um, conglomerate, we'll call it, uh, you know, as an extension of a better Delaware and, and uh, some of our of our friends. Yeah, I just listened to, uh, I, I am a familiar with that. Um, I just listened to an interesting conversation um, that Glenn Greenwald had with a friend of show, Nathan J. Robinson from Current Affairs, about these two sort of ideas that look the same, but they're not. So you have sort of this independent new media source here, and you have this independent new media source over here. And, you know, frankly, sometimes... Uh, sometimes on a particular issue, we might agree. It, it's happened because I've been looking at them you know, more, more, more closely. Um, <clears throat> but the difference being is uh, that's that's a con. That's fake. Like uh, we we know what that is. We know who backs that, and we know what their interests are. And so I'm I'm um, very excited to uh, to draw those contrasts and draw those lines. Yeah, I, no, I, I know. I, I poke fun, but I think it's I think it's great, and I think we need more you know kind of grassroots uh, journalism because you know what we're seeing with Gannett and and the furloughs right now. I mean, it's just it's it's really tough time for journalists right now. So the more that we can uh, kind of diversify what that space looks like, I think the better off we're all going to be. Yeah, my my feeling on Gannett and, and the news journal is you know I know people there and I know that that they're you know they do good work as best they can, um, but they're under so many not not only labor and, and furlough constraints, but just corporate general corporate constraints. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to have advertising, so I don't care. Like it doesn't matter to me or, or to Jordan, you know, we, we're going to have our standard, not, you know, to sell advertising or to, to push a certain, you know, ulterior motive. Um, so I think that will, that will come out, but I got to give a shout out to my friends over there. Cause I know they're struggling. And as you said, with, with furloughs and, and all of that pressure behind them, um, yeah, it's got to be very difficult. No, but I, I agree. They've been doing really great work, um, even more lately, just with all that is particularly newsworthy right now. And they've just been on the front lines. And yeah, hats off to the news yeah. journal right now. So I, I want to get your feelings on a story because I asked you a question um, a few months ago. I guess around the time maybe you were you were filing um, to to run uh, or 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 you had done it already. I I, I suppose and. I asked you if you wanted to talk about it because I was, I was sort of fascinated by it because a lot of people who get involved and run for an office um, pick something um, either, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it. Carrie ran against uh, Carper, Jess is running against Coons, and I think it's very important and they're picking where they think they can do damage. But, you know, these other, these other offices are like unsung heroes. You know, um, they don't. You know, they don't get a lot of press. They don't get really any. Um, but you know, it, it takes a lot of to 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 say I want to do that particular job. I thought was actually was pretty admirable. Um, but when I asked you, your first reaction was based on something that someone told you about. Like, um, I don't know. Do you remember this conversation? I, I do. I do. I do. You, what's your what's your? I like you to reflect on that because I found it very interesting, and it was. It was sort of the opposite. I thought somebody would get a 
would get pushback about being ambitious if they did something like Kerry would do against Carper. Now, I don't agree with that critique, but I understand that that's what I get. But for somebody to want to dive in the trenches and work on a school board, I think that that critique just I couldn't believe somebody said that. But anyway, I'd like to you to reflect on it if you could. Sure. So I, I think the gist of the, the comment that I said is, so as you know, I've, I've run a number of campaigns, I've worked on a number of, of other campaigns, um, and there's there's kind of this, this staffer, community organizer, behind the scenes um, crew of people, right? And and we, you know, it's the network teller folks, it's, it's the folks who are, you know, running campaigns, being, you know, body people out there, like staffing at all of the events. And um, a really common sentiment, I think, is when you see someone who's never been in those trenches, they would say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, basically, you're just trying to serve your time. And like, when are you going to run? Right? Like, and there's, and there's this presumption that any of us who work to support candidates or work to support causes behind the scenes are doing it for some selfish reason that we're just biding our time and waiting for, you know, the, the silver lining for us to run for office. And I, I just, I have really... Um, yeah, I, I've gotten a lot of that, and I know that a lot of my friends and colleagues have gotten that sentiment that that basically says there's no way you could possibly want to, you know, work on campaigns or work um, in policy or, or government because you see it as a stepping stone. And I just completely reject the premise of that uh, line of thinking. I think, you know, given like a house of cards and other, you know, Pick a media that has really kind of either glorified or completely, you know, alienated what politics looks like. And it makes it seem like it's all of these like evil old men smoking cigars in the backs of rooms. And there are all these deals and like bodies buried places. Most politics, I mean, maybe you see that stuff in D.C. And you certainly see like a little bit of it at the state level. But I genuinely believe that most people who are running for office really at any level, um, are doing it because they want to make a difference and they're doing it for all the right reasons. And maybe there's people who are listening, they're like, you're naive, that's stupid, and people are only running for office for personal gain. But I just, having having spent my whole career working for candidates with candidates, I mean, it's really, like, it's pretty grueling work. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, like you have, you you put in the work to knock on doors. Uh, you know, the 4th of July, like, I, you know, this is a really unpopular opinion, but I don't love um, parades as a campaign mechanism. I think it's fine once you're in office to do the parades, but I don't think that that's actually the way that you change hearts and minds about, like, getting elected is um so the fourth of july is always in the staffer world kind of this day where we're like okay it's parade day we got to get all the way up and down you got to hit four parades this day it's 100 degrees you're just throwing candy and trying not to hit kids with the candy that you're throwing um so anyways i guess my point is campaign work is really thankless um as progressives know in delaware we've had a lot of losses um the last you know the last couple of cycles we've had a few really good wins um, but to the point that you made about um, some of the bigger races, I think progressives as a community continue to run. Maybe our candidate doesn't make it. Um, you know, I'd certainly working with Chris, we uh, we we came in third out of a four-way race, right? Like, it's um, it's really humbling and it's really hard work. But I think that 
we keep coming back for a reason. And uh, part of what I was really inspired about after the 2018 election was uh, a group of people came together um, to form Leftward Delaware, which has done a lot of really good work this year in providing that coaching and supports for people who aren't running for the bigger offices, but are running for state house, are running for city council. And I think that, um, you know, there's just a lot of perseverance in that community of people and a resilience that frankly, I just don't think you can fake in pursuit of, you know, having the fame of being a, you know, school board member. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, if you look at the folks who have run and really made an impact in, on, in the political side of the leftward movement, since you mentioned it, um, you know, Carrie Harris was plucked from obscurity and just became somebody who was a working class, uh, person who wanted to do something. Um, Jess Grain is, is a more professional person, but really has no uh, political background. Um, both of the both of their campaigns will are, are include people who I don't think will ever run for anything because it's not what they do. You know, um, you know, you have some people uh, that do step up and run that have a background in you know, either they were a legislative aide or they're an academic uh, like like Medina. But you also have Kyra Hoffner, who is just an, an advocate who's, you know, whose husband retired and wants to try to advocate for people. So, yeah, I mean, I, I see the left as a, a lot. And, and again, there are people who have political ambition, but I mean, every politician has political ambition. It's sort of like, what does it look like um, when you talk to the person? How do you perceive it? What you know, what does it look like in a grander context? So, yeah, I, I, I think I, I don't, you know, I, I, I definitely hear that for different people for different reasons at different levels, but I don't put too much, too much into it. Yeah, no, I, I think your point about like, there's a level of political ambition that you have to have by virtue of getting out of your bed and deciding like, I'm going to go to a protest or I'm going to go canvas or I'm going to do some sort of political action today as opposed to like, I'm going to go to the beach, which, you know, go to the beach, whatever, wear your mask. But like, you know, you're allowed to have a life and, uh, and something that I'm, I'm curious, uh, and we can circle back to this, but talking about, um, you know, kind of campaign and, and activist fatigue, I think is something that um, I want to hit on really quickly. But, uh, but your point about political ambition, I think that every one of us has political ambition, but I don't think that that means I need my name on the yard sign. I need my, you know, whatever personal element that is. It's, I want this policy passed. I want to dramatically change the status quo. I want to improve the lives of people who live in my community. And I think that that requires a level of ambition. I mean, even just in the rhetoric that a lot of progressive candidates use, it's really ambitious language. And, you know, we can talk all we want about, um, you know, finding the right way to say things to bring people along. And like, there's, there's a whole messaging conversation that you can be had. But I think that just by virtue of saying things like Medicare for all, um, that's ambitious. I'm not saying that we shouldn't normalize those things. We absolutely should. But, you know, that's how you move the needle is you take that ambition and you turn it into, you know, political actions and turn it into an issue campaign where you have hundreds of people calling their legislators or, you know, thousands of people showing up at a protest. I mean, that's, that's how you move the needle. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's get into a little of the campaign stuff now. Um, so maybe we can circle back to some more general stuff. But uh, I want to ask you this question because, and, and you can say as much or as little as you like about it. I have a few thoughts about it. 
Um, but the the education organizer and activist uh, Otten Ray uh, Elaine, um, he uh, wrote a piece about the race that you're in uh, because there was a, a woman uh, who was going to challenge the incumbent who's, uh, I guess, he's been there was it a decade maybe more? He's been there for 20 years. 20 years. So, so uh, yourself and another candidate are challenging that person. Uh, the other challenger uh, is a black woman, I guess, who you, you had spoken with, uh, according to uh, uh, Otten Ray, and we're deciding whether or not to jump in or not because you just didn't feel comfortable because the, the person already had a challenger. Uh, and you made some statements, I guess, subsequently to Otten Ray himself uh, about maybe some challenges that your, uh, your, the, that the other challenger would have. Uh, and that there are certain uh, certain places in the suburbs she might not do very well. Um, she may be inexperienced, uh, and that was taken. Uh, it was taken a lot of different ways, uh, but it was taken in sort of a, a racially insensitive way. Uh, maybe it was taken in a classist way um, because uh, maybe the person's. I don't know a lot about her to be honest, um, but I, I, I so I don't know what her background is. But again, it, it, maybe it's not as privileged um, and not as. Uh, yeah, not as edu not, not you know not as much education or whatever. Um, so I I just like you to, to sort of reflect on that and and give your your side of the story, uh, and then I'll sort of sort of give where I'm coming from from the whole thing. Um, but I know that it's it's a it's it's something that's been out, and I'm interested in your thoughts about it. Frankly, you know, I think that the majority of people who read it understand that political backdrop and. Um, are, are able to make their own, um, you know, make their own decisions about the veracity of what was said um, about me, about my character, about my opponent, about the situation. Um, but yeah, overall, it's just shown me that I'm not sure that that's, you know, that that's someone that I'm going to be able to have a partnership with in the future. Um, I mean, like, if you're, before getting to hear my side of the story, or tell me that you are going to write this, um, I woke up to texts from all sorts of people across my life. And you know what? Whatever. Like, that's politics. People write things about you. And so where I've landed on this is, if people take it at face value, I hope someone gets something good out of it. I hope that someone gets to learn a lesson. I hope that white people think a little bit more carefully about their words. But if you understand the backdrop of that conversation, I hope that you can see through it and see what the political intent was behind that. I th I think that that's totally fair. I mean, that's again, hopefully, you know, airing this out will help people do that if they don't, um, if they don't understand the political context to it, and and yeah, I mean, I've been in, in this situation too where you know I put these conversations out on the internet and just say whatever, you know, Carl keeps me out of any legal trouble, but that doesn't mean, you know, I don't say shit that people hate. Um, my haters are actually some of my, uh, my best fans. Um, but yeah, I had to think about the things I say and how it's taken and what it really means. Like just check phrases that I use or, you know, common idioms or, you know, the ways that I think. And I think that that's fine. And as you said, it, it, you cannot, but you, you can't take that, you can't take that out of the political context that it's in. So I think both of those, both of those things are perfectly fair.
the reason why I, I think it's taken a lot of oxygen is to your point earlier, there's not a lot of reporting on school board issues. Um, I mean, there is this week, uh, you know, we've got a really big proposal coming up in the Red Clay School District. Yeah, let's talk about that because, um, yeah, you, uh, you and I were on the call a few weeks ago um, to speak about it. And I think we both spoke. Um, I, I got asked uh, by my friend here, uh, Adrian, uh, Adriana Brahm. Um, to speak and and yeah, I said something like it, when you call when you call an armed guard of the state in a school a resource officer, you are you're giving away the game. Like the reason you're changing the name of it is because that person doesn't belong there. Um, because you can't say oh we're putting a, an an armed officer of the law in there. You have to change the name of it because they don't they're not supposed to be there. Um, so I, my, that's that's my hope. What is I mean? You spoke. Um, you've been talking about this issue obviously with with the folks there. Um, what's your, what's your, uh, what's your feeling on it and how do you, how do you think it's going to go? Uh, well, um, I'm not, I'll be honest. I'm not particularly optimistic that it's going to pass. Um, and I think that that's, um, that that's a reflection on, um, the board. There's, um, I, I think that, that, that board has, you know, Dr. Bohm and uh, and then Jose Matthews, I think that they are on the front lines of equity issues and constantly trying to elevate um, really important things. I mean, um, Dr. Bohm uh, had asked me years ago to uh, come to a meeting and, and speak in support of creating an equity committee. And that equity committee um, ultimately led to the hiring of Dr. Tawanda Bond, who is the chief equity officer for the district. And Dr. Bond's doing some really awesome work. Um, in the last year or two, we've talked a lot about um, Senate Bill 85 from, I believe, the last General Assembly, and that was focusing on the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, and I mean, the, the suspension data and, and all of the disciplinary data in Delaware public schools, I mean, I mean it's super clear. It's, it's really out of balance, and, and we are, we are over, um, over-suspending, over-disciplining black and brown students, um, black and brown students with special needs, uh, disabilities being a particularly high uh, highly represented demographic of people who are uh, really being pushed out of the classroom and being pushed into the criminal justice system. And um, so this conversation about school resource officers, um, you know, obviously it's, uh, I think people think that it's, it started because of the George Floyd, the Breonna Taylor, um, you know, this, this big kind of revival uh, that we're having of the Black Lives Matter movement um, that's really taken a lot of, uh, I, I, it's taken the country really by storm and more and more people are paying attention. And now we're kind of starting to normalize phrases like defund the police. And, you know, and I think that, that those are really important conversations to be had. Um, part of the reason I don't think that this bill will ultimately pass. And if, if it does pass tomorrow, then wow, that will be a surprise. And I bet you um, my incumbent will probably have been a yes vote if, uh, if it does pass. But I think that that will be a departure because as of a couple of weeks ago, he was um, he was supportive of keeping SROs. Um, but I think that we're I think that we're in this space. Um, but this isn't new, right? Like w there have long been concerns in red clay and really statewide that SROs overreach, um, that SROs can escalate situations. And everything that we know about police presence, you know, being the reality that it's it's not as um, it does not give the illusion of safety as it does for uh, for white students as it does for black and brown students. I, I, 
I don't think that this is a new fight. And I think that people are really, really fired up about this. I mean, the, the impression that I get is that there have been hundreds and hundreds of emails and calls and texts to the school board members and that this is like the hottest button issue that, that they've dealt with in years. Yeah. How does, how does that break down? Because, because I know, I, and, and again, I, not that it means, it only means what it means in the context, but you know, I logged into the Zoom thing a couple weeks ago uh, and, and made my comment. You know, I had it, sent it in and made it. And, you know, there was dozens and dozens, 50, 75 people maybe making comments. And I was maybe two-thirds of the way in. And after 50 or so, <clears throat> I mean, it was 10 to 1 against. And so I don't know what, what, what other, what, what other uh, emails and what other stuff are people hearing about? Is there a groundswell of support or is it just the basic sort of reactionaries and police unions? Well, uh, it's tough to tell, right? Uh, as much as we, you know, we don't poll on issues. I mean, like in Delaware, it's so hard to like get a real grip on what yeah, public it's just, is. It's just, I thought your, your, your finger's on the pulse of it. That's what I'll say. Right. You've heard, you've heard from three people and suddenly like that's, that's what the public is demanding. Um, and you know, we can talk about those effects down in Dover where, you know, people think that they're doing the right thing because they're listening to the loud few on, you know, both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Um, but I think the reality is I'm not sure if public opinion is with this issue yet. I am not sure um, particularly if you look at the average person who is engaged at the school board level, the primary audience here is parents, right? And most parents, if, you know, if you look at the composition of districts up and down the state, but like, let's even take red clay. So you talked earlier about why do we, why do we letter the districts as opposed to number them? I have no idea, but I will tell you that districts A and B have parts of the city. So A is Dr. Bones. She's got, you know, Highlands where you are, uh, triangle area. Um, I'm in District B, which is uh, Cool Spring, Tilton, uh, a lot of the west side of Wilmington, up through kind of like the, um, the the outskirts of Greenville, um, and then the rest of it is just really suburban. Um, so, so the majority of the district, uh, when you look at the map, is is incredibly suburban. And so, I think that when you when you talk to most folks, policing in their communities is really different than policing say in my neighborhood or in neighborhoods really nearby mine. Um, and I think that if you were to do a straw poll of what the public was thinking about this, I think that cops would stay in schools. And frankly, I think people would be so mad that you would threaten to take their cops that we would probably actually have more cops in schools. Um, I think that we're hearing a lot of anecdotes right now about the friendly neighborhood SRO, you know, oh, this guy, he's strengthening relationships with students in the schools. And our SRO is so wonderful. He comes to all of our, you know, block parties. And the, you know, they're really immersed. I think, I think that that can be true. I think that you can have good SROs who are good fixtures in the in the school community. The question is, do they need to have a gun and do they need to be a police officer? Does that have to be a cop? No. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a broader. I, 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 it's, it's interesting, and I guess that's why I'm. I was. While I don't have any children and I stay out of a lot of school board and education issues generally, um, just because I, I, I've never gotten involved in them, um, I got involved in this one because it's a, it's a microcosm of the debate that we're having in the street. Like, do you need a resource officer to defuse things or, you know, a, you know some sort of like a, a master's in social work person to talk to people or to take care of whatever? Yes, but it doesn't. And the fact that the police person who's doing it 
is nice is out is completely irrelevant to the fact that it's not for police to do. Like if if you have a problem at your house and someone's having a mental health issue or you have a an automobile accident or whatever, you don't have to call armed officers for that. Um, so the cops just don't belong there. So the fact that the police, the fact that they come to the cookout, I don't know. Like it doesn't mean anything to me because it's not. You're talking about the wrong thing. As you said, we could we could replace that person with an, uh, with another structure to handle you know whether it's disciplinary issues or whatever and 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 do it without you know an armed agent of the state absolutely and i think that it's clear that we in all of these conversations right about police reform about criminal justice reform you pick an issue right now that is kind of against this backdrop of black lives matter and like this you know big public outcry that we're experiencing right now that it feels like we can't afford to compromise and we can't afford to wait. Um, and I think that that's really true. And that's, that's where I personally am, but just understanding the, the political realities of what is going to happen, um, you know, probably with this, with this board vote tomorrow night, I suspect that this vote will fail two to five. Um, I think that I think that you will have two strong votes, and I think you will have five no votes. Um, I will be incredibly surprised if it does not go that way. It's a shame, um, and I, you know, I don't, I get why it's, I get why it's like that. But I think that that vote will fail two to five, and I think what will happen next is some version of a task force and something that in the staffer world we talk about a lot is, you know, task are where good ideas go to die. But I'll say this. I do think that um, parents are feeling like they have not been included in this conversation. I think any advocate will tell you, we've been having conversations about uh, about racial justice. We've been having these conversations for a really long time. Um, you know, there have been problems with SROs. There have been problems with police in the communities that, you know, red clay students go to. So this isn't anything new, but I think much like there are a lot of people who are kind of waking up to their white privilege, people who are waking up to, you know, the systems that we're in, we're bringing more people to this conversation right now. and. I'm not someone who, you know, it's, it's a tough line to walk, right? Because you don't want to completely scare those people off because they're potential allies. They're potentially people who are going to understand and be supportive. I mean, in my own journey, like to discovering my white privilege, I mean, it took forever. I'm still constantly, I, you know, I make mistakes. I'm learning. I'm learning the impact of my words and the intent of what I'm, of what I'm doing doesn't always come off as, I thought that it would, you know, it should happens. But I think that it's really important that we, we do this. I, I think that the important goal is that this happens, right? And so I think what's really, um, what's going to happen is probably like a, a, a vote will come to the floor tomorrow. It'll probably fail. With this task force though, we can't let up. We can't let the task force decide that, that, you know, this is not a tenable option for us. And so I think that really often once, once we get, you know, once, and, and this kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier, once there's a, a, a sad vote or a sad election loss, I think people feel like it's really hard to come around to the table to talk about that next step, that compromise, right? So, you know, for example, like I ran Chris Johnson's campaign, we lost, for a long time, I was like, oh my gosh, like, how did that happen? You know, 
had a lot of thoughts and feelings about, you know, was it our messaging? Was it our strategy? Like, you know, thought about it. And, and a lot of, you know, we were really frustrated. But now I look at Kathy Jennings. She's killing it. She's absolutely killing it. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I wanted to ask you about that because, um, you know, I supported Chris. I was very public about it. Uh, uh, I, you know, I had him on the podcast. I had him over, uh, you know, personally to talk to him a couple times. And, you know, I learned quite a bit from that campaign, too. But I'm, I'm interested. I, did, did you come away with it? just sort of looking at strategy or or did you come away with any other sort of takeaways that you're like okay i see sort of what any grander sort of um uh political sort of in, in a larger context did you did you take anything away from it oh my god i took a lot away from that campaign um i mean first and foremost i i didn't realize at the time just how impactful it was um we spent a lot of time um, talking with folks who were re-entering um, society from from being formerly incarcerated, and just um, getting to kind of be a fly on the wall and watching Chris really connect with those people, um, you know, talk about shared experiences. I just, you know, I was very much just kind of sitting and listening, but I really absorbed so much. Um, and really had my eyes opened to a lot of things that, even in liberal spaces, um, it's really easy to not to not really be proximate to the change that you're talking about. I mean, like for some people, criminal justice is a talking point, right? Because they haven't had a family member incarcerated. They haven't been incarcerated themselves. They haven't, uh, you know, pick a thing, right? But um, just getting to be near Chris and in the rooms and spaces where he had a voice and where he had a perspective and he was, you know, kind of, there was this back and forth. I learned so much uh, and I'm just really grateful for all of the time that we got to spend in the rooms that we got to spend them in. Um, we spent a lot of time talking to national policy experts. We had someone from Larry Krasner's team who had just won a year earlier. And so, you know, Krasner was kind of the, the early tipping point for this wave of progressive DAs and AGs running across the country um, in this kind of post-Trump um, era. So I don't know if you followed the Krasner race in 2017, but you know, he won in this really crowded, I think it was an eight way primary for the Philly DA in 2017. And it was this, like, it was this crazy surprise. Um, and he ran on, you know, ending cash bail, ending mass incarceration, you know, demilitarizing the police, things that were like seemingly pretty radical three years ago. Um, and I think that he really paved the way for Chris's race. Um, for a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the the reforms that Kathy Jennings, within, you know, the first hundred days of her being our attorney general, just got to do, right? I mean, she she put out an internal memo that totally changed the way that charging worked and, and all sorts of things. And I just, um, you know, I think what I've learned most is that you have to understand when, like, when a loss can lead to a win and like not lose faith, not lose, like not lose like the ability to keep your foot on the gas. And so I think like the same goes for this SRO thing. Like if this, if this policy, you know, gets struck down and, and I, I feel like it probably will, we've got this opportunity that people are at least engaging in this dialogue and there's still, you know, it might take some time, but we could really reimagine the way that school climate operates in the way that we, um, you know, 
the way that we provide for our students. And I think that having more parents who feel like they've been part of the conversation, having more educators, um, I think that's really important. The one thing that I don't think is super important here, and this, um, this is a, a topic of conversation that I know um, has been happening a lot, is that in Delaware, there is a really strong um, influence for our police at every level of government. I mean, just the FOP, um, has a, has a grip on Delaware politics. It's a common it's a common theme in here. Yeah, disturbingly democratic politics. I I said the same thing. I said the same thing to Judge Strine. I said, you know, you look at Speaker of the House. You look at the, the Franklin Cook who they just picked for this uh, oversight committee. Um, the previous Newcastle County Executive, the previous uh, Wilmington Mayor, uh, the Insurance Commissioner, for some reason, and those are just the Democrats. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I, I think that I think that the Democratic Party is. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to see more and more of this. But I, I think we're really going to have to come to terms with. You know, does the FOP belong in the labor movement? Does the FOP do they reflect our values? I think if you ask any of the guys who are like rank and file members of the FOP, are they voting for our candidates? No, they're not. And I think it's important that, you know, we understand that this SRO conversation is so hard because the FOP has made every conversation really hard. Well, again, the answer the, to me, the answer is no, they don't belong in the labor movement. Uh, for the uh, for many reasons, the biggest one that uh, my friend Andre Demise always says is there's no union where both labor and management are in the same union against who? Like every like it doesn't make sense. How are like the person you're supposed to be negotiating with your management, but it's all they're all together, uh, and and they're, and they're disconnected from um, you know from working class politics. I think um, I th I think. Um, well, I also believe that there's a disconnect between the union and maybe the police leadership. I, I noticed that when there, when when the AG um, got some heat from both sides after the incident in Camden, that you know a letter was sent from the from the two police unions or associations, but no no police chief signed on, like no operating person signed on to that. So there's even a disconnect between, you know, the political arm of the FOP, for instance, and maybe, you know, a detective or somebody running, a, you know, a unit in, in, in Newcastle County or something. Yeah, I, I think that there are, you know, I'm not going to go, I'm, I'm not going to take the extreme that I'm sure you have some people, uh, you know, on, on this podcast um, come in and say, I, I do think that there are people who are trying to do the right thing uh, within, um, you know, within. I, I wish, I wish they would let themselves be known a little bit better. You know, I, I think that I, you know, take him or leave him, but I'll take him because I think that he's done a good job is uh, chief Tracy. I think with Wilmington PD, I think he, um, you know, I actually working with Chris, I got to um, spend a little bit of time getting to, getting to learn more about, cause I, I really had no reason to know about, uh, police or police unions uh before working for chris and um you know so i think chief tracy is is really trying to do you know yeah i don't, I, I don't know I, I i it's hard for me after after what happened to, to yahim uh after what happened to um jabari hunter asleep in his car um and they they both lived um, after what happened to the guy, I guess he was uh, having a, a mental epi uh, health episode, the longshoreman who was, I think he was, I heard he was firing a gun into the air. 
Um, he was killed uh, on North Market Street. Like, it's just at some point, I, I at some point I don't care what's in your heart. Like I or I don't care how hard you're trying. It's not working. And so it's very difficult for me to be like, oh, you know, he he's certainly more professional. And his, I mean, I've I've met him a few times, maybe not in the in the best of circumstances. <laughs> I've met him in the street a few times, and I've gotten into him pretty good. And 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 he's very professional, and he seems like he has his shit together. But I mean, he's just a cop, you know. So it's hard for me. It's hard for me to say, oh, oh, I, I know that you have these things you're trying to do, but I don't, I don't see any, like other than I know you're trying to do them, I see no evidence of them. Fair. That, that's a really fair position to take. I guess I'll say this. So long as we have cops and so long as we have police chiefs, I think that Chief Tracy is, you know, is as far as Delaware is going to go, I think we're lucky to have him in that role because I think that there are a lot of people who could be doing far worse. Uh, but your point's not lost on me. And, you know, I, I don't, <laughs> it's not my place to get into the role of defending police here. I think that they can, they can certainly stand on their own two feet here. But um, I do think that, we are we are in for a long conversation with this SRO's piece, and uh, I think that there is a way to do it. I think there's a way to accomplish what we're looking for. My biggest concern on this isn't so much about the political will or the discomfort of people who think that you know SROs are keeping their schools much safer. Um, I want to make sure that we've got the the workforce pipeline that's able to sustain this. You know, we we talk a lot, and I was actually really delighted that there were so many counselors um, who came on to last month's school board meeting and and spoke in support of this um, because I think so often um, you know we can we can talk about a problem and and you know identify a solution right like oh we'll just just have more mental health professionals, have more therapists, have more counselors, um, but then the counselors are like, hey, wait a second, like. Did, were you gonna like were you gonna let us know like are you, you know how how are you going to make that work and i think that my biggest concern is making sure that you know if we snap our fingers and do this um do we have enough of a pipeline of people who can step in and fill those roles because i it, what's what's been made abundantly clear to me is that our our unit count our ratio of mental health professionals to students in our schools whether or not it's in compliance of what it should be, it's much lower than it needs to be. Yeah. And so what I like about this proposal is that it's revenue neutral. I mean, it, it far too often you hear people talk about big ideas, like how do we get police out of schools? Uh, pick another thing, right? Like, but there's a big price tag, but we've already figured out how to, you know, how to solve that price tag is, is how do we get more mental health professionals in schools? Stop paying the cops. And so to me, I think more proposals need to think like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's not lost on me that, that that's not how every budget and how every issue can work. But just, I think that's one thing I will credit progressives with is, um, oftentimes you talk a lot about big lofty ideals. And I think we are really inclined to speak aspirationally and people are so keen on voting against someone who talks too aspirational because they're worried that it's going to cost them too much in tax dollars. I, you know, have a lot of feelings on that, but I, I do think that I would rather 
I would rather talk and, and elect and believe in the person who is speaking aspirationally about everything and, and coming up with ways to get it done, even if it takes a little political will to do it. But I think progressives are pretty pragmatic in that we know how to fund things. We know how to, you know, we know how to provide proposals that once you hear it, it makes sense. Um, and I think we, we are, I'm excited that more and more of these, you know, issue campaigns really break it down for people and, and take a complex issue. And I mean, I can't tell you an organizer, um, you know, from the ACLU or from Network Delaware who isn't equipped with the talking points of here's the why, but more importantly, here's the how. I think that, I think community organizers, progressives, people who are fighting for racial justice are really, really good at, um, at providing the how. And I think that's important. Cool. Well, let's wrap up with something, uh, inspirational too um i think i've seen you in the street a few times um i i i how, how are you doing with that i mean how, how are you um have you been out uh since the, i saw you maybe at the highlands uh, trolley square uh march maybe yeah so let me so that was honestly like super dope uh i think that it's really cool when you can get people i mean i i don't know if you were there at the end but um the organizers asked, raise your hand if this was your first protest. Yeah. Almost half the people raised it. Yeah, I was, after I saw that, I was the person who yelled, I'll see you next week. Oh, good. Okay. That was, that was me. I thought that that was amazing. I really was so excited to see um, so many people. Like I say, I think, you know, I am feeling optimistic about the moment that we're in because more and more people are coming to this. More and more people are are understanding their role in white supremacy in you know these systems of oppression that for a long time it was so easy for us to just either not know we're there or ignore um and so i think that you know showing up to protests in places that aren't um you know aren't the the normal place i mean you know yeah I, I, I i said it myself here i mean um doing that uh in in the neighborhood i live in and coming up my block and being able to like run into run up my neighbor's steps and, and, and you know all of that what was great you know i mean it was it was uh, you know it was a um you know it was an introductory course you know it was like the uh, the 101 but to be able to to put several hundred people out and and see you know people who are very pampered very very easy to ignore what's happening for people to be to to shove it in their face like that I think was uh, was actually productive. Yeah, I, I worry. I, I I worry that number one, it's slowing down, and I worry that it's a little bit co opted. But but yeah, I mean, definitely doing things in places that people aren't used to or aren't comfortable with them is extremely important. Absolutely, I think really often we have um, we have you know we protest in Wilmington, you know, in the uh, area that will maybe someday be formerly known as Rodney Square, who knows? Um, uh, you know, we, we show up um, in Newark quite a bit, um, you know, at the UU church down there, or honestly on Main Street, and that's just because there's a lot of uh, students there. And we show up in Dover, and there's so much state in between those three places. 
And I really think it's very meaningful to to physically be present in people's districts. I mean, you know, when was the last time there was, uh, you know, a protest in, uh, you know, the, like the Route 13 corridor, for example? I mean, so I think you have your Wilmington elected officials who come to expect that there's going to be, um, you know, political protests, demonstrations, vigils in their community. Um, and I think it lets a lot of people off the hook, frankly. Um, you know, there are a lot of our leaders that we never see at protests and we probably never will. Um, and you know, the thing about Dover is it's so easy for any elected official to step outside the building and stand in solidarity with whatever issue's happening. Well, let's be, let's be clear. Uh, they step outside the building and stand. They stand, absolutely. I they wouldn't say they stand in solidarity. <laughs> I'll say they, <laughs> they, they, fill, they, they fill, fill up space. They, they fill up space. They get in the nice picture, they send it out in their newsletter, and then they vote the other way, right? I mean, you know, we saw the same thing happen with Greg Lavelle in 2018. He was out there for the ERA rally and then voted against it. Like, are you serious? Um, and, you know, pick a bit. That's, that's just one example of, of that happening. But I think that, you know, we, to your point, I do notice that people are dying down. People are getting a little bit more complacent. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was, it was, July 4th obviously just happened and we talked a lot about, um, you know, this year, I think more and more people were paying attention to Juneteenth and uh, saying, you know, July 4th is canceled. We're, we're doing Juneteenth this year. And uh, it was so funny to see so many people just kind of go about July 4th business as usual. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like the 4th certainly felt way different this year than normal. Um, and it, yeah, it did. Uh, you know, because of everything that's going on at the beach and Juneteenth, Juneteenth is another thing that, um, you know, it got quickly co-opted uh, because like no one, you know, it used to be a thing that, you know, you knew about it. Maybe you knew about it. Maybe you went to this or you said something that. But it was kind of like um, almost like an underground thing. And then it was, you know, co-branded by, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase and stuff. And it was like, wow, that happened pretty fast. Like, that's the stuff I'm always on the lookout for. Right. And so your point about, you know, about co-opting movements is something that I'm, you know, I'm very cognizant of and, and want to be sure that, you know, we're amplifying the right voices who need to be leading the charge and, and finding ways to be supportive as opposed to being out there on the front lines. Um, yeah. Well, I did hear about uh, a Newark action on Main Street on Saturday the 25th. Um, I cut a little plug that'll be... Um, It'll play at this week's uh, before this week's show, so try to get people to go out uh, on Saturday the 25th. But on uh, the 21st of July, make sure to, if you live in the Red Clay School District, go to your polling place. Or uh, have they mailed in as well? Or, or how how does that work? How's that? How is that? Because they've they've moved the date. So w give us the details so everybody knows what's going on. Absolutely, yeah. They moved the election twice, so uh, so so uh, we're really hoping it's uh, it stays for two weeks from now. Um, no, so uh, Tuesday, July twenty first, um, there are a whole host of polling places, but not your usual polling places. They're actually only at schools, um, as well as you can drop off ballots at the Department of Elections. I believe you can also vote in person at the Department of Elections. So I can certainly, if, if you want to, uh, when you post this podcast, if you want to post a list of polling places, we'll make sure that we get folks. Oh, perfect. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can go and look up where whatever changes there have been, they can, they can take a look. Yeah, I've got a whole list of things that I'd like to talk about at another time about how we need to make school board elections more uh, attainable. I mean, it's like 1% or 2% of the population votes in a school board election. So um, your vote really does matter. I voted in a... 
I voted in a school board election for Liz Page back in 2015 that I think she had like a 20 vote margin and she went on to be the school board president. So yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so no, so, uh, election day is, uh, is coming up. Um, you know, your voice really does matter. There are two races happening simultaneously. So there's, um, mine in district G, uh, B, excuse me. And then there's also a race happening in district G, uh, both of which are contested. Um, so you should definitely take a look at all of the candidates who are running and, um, you know, hopefully if you're a person who you think that your schools are doing um, exactly what they need to be doing and uh, are knocking it out of the park for you, um, then, you know, you've had an incumbent who's going to maintain the status quo. But uh, if you are looking for someone who is going to actively be out there in the community, at the community meetings, uh, in the streets with people, um, you know, I hope that you would uh, consider voting for me. And, uh, you know, we the, the thing that I, I think is really important is um, – throughout this whole process, I mean, win or lose, I'm going to be at school board meetings, period. I mean, uh, that there is, there are not a lot of people who show up to school board meetings that aren't direct stakeholders, parents, educators, you know, people who this is their daily life. And I think if more community members who had that advocacy, um, you know, centered focus, uh, showed up and, and paid attention to school board politics. I think we could really do a lot to improve our communities, especially when things are tough and over. Um, like I say, it's really the more local you get, the more of an impact you as an individual can have. And I think that that's really important as things seem so daunting uh, nationally and even here at the state level sometimes. Yes. Uh, so definitely get out and vote on the 21st. Also consider uh, voting up this podcast by uh, giving us a uh, patronage every month. At, uh, at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. You can find us at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Uh, and you can look at all of our work. And pretty soon, you're going to be able to uh, see some journalism work that will be independent, that I'll be, you know, tangentially associated with. But don't look down on our journalism just because I'm an idiot. Um, Sarah, thank you for uh, coming in. I appreciate it. And I'm sure our paths will cross again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Bye. Thank